while we are standing and while families are together, before children are dismissed to the children's area to read God's word together. Families, we love you. Children, we love you, and we desire you to hear God's word with the fellowship. And so, allow me uh, to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse, uh, the second half of verse 2, uh, on through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord, and this is what he says. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness... Well, then he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrel, or he quarrels about words which uh, produce envy, dissension, slander, evil uh, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord, and we are grateful for it. Uh, we're going to continue uh, with our uh, with our liturgy here at Christ the King as we take just a few minutes to greet one another, uh, meet someone new who's around you. We value relationship. We value gospel-centered relationship. And so take some time to, uh, to meet and greet. Grab a cup of coffee if you would like. Uh, and we will be back in just a few minutes. All right, what's up, everyone? Um, I was telling Mr. Stacy, uh, we were chatting uh, just now. You guys did that too. So, yeah, you know what happened. Um, and I told him, like, after being in the hospital in Birmingham all day yesterday, which, like, I was in the baby wing, so it's, like, the like the healthiest part of the hospital, right? Like, um, you still, like, I just feel like after breathing in that air all day that, like, something's wrong with me. I don't know. Um, so does that make sense, Haley? That happens. Haley's a nurse. She knows. But she's not giving the secrets away. So um, something's wrong with the air in hospitals. Just know that's my theory. So, um, hey, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. We are working through this summer series through 1 and 2 Timothy. There was a lot of intentionality as to why uh, we are, we're going through this first because um, of the providence of the Lord. Like, we'll look there first. Uh, but then in addition to his providence, right, we are a church plant that is a year and a half old, which fits into that, right, of course. And so um, we are having lots of conversations about leadership here at Christ the King. And um, basically beginning to see certain offices uh, become a part of this fellowship, that being the office of, of uh, elder, overseer, and deacon. And so um, that's one reason that we are so intentionally going through these two pastoral epistles. This summer, we're preparing for big things um, for this fellowship, as the Lord is preparing us for big things here at this fellowship. And so uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
this morning. Uh, we did uh, verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 last week. Um, I'm super excited about where we are going to be this morning because I think that it's really uh, powerful in that we see uh, Paul speaking towards something that everybody in this room desires, right? Whether you're um, a Christian or whether you're a skeptic, um, we're seeing issues brought to the surface this morning by Paul that we can all relate with, that we are all considerate of, and that is um, this idea of contentment, right? Uh, we're familiar with what contentment is, perhaps, or maybe you're unfamiliar with contentment and you just desire it really bad. Um, but we see Paul addressing this issue of contentment this morning in the second half of verse 2 and on through uh, verse 10. He talks about things that will not bring us contentment and that if those things are not to satisfy us, where are we to, uh, where are we to look, right? So we're going to look at that this morning as well as how we as Christians are to hold to sound teaching and trust the Lord, right? We are to, as Christians, as God's people, the redeemed by Christ his sacrifice for sinners, you and I, adopted into the family by way of his blood, we are to hold to his teaching, right? We're to hold to the teaching of the scriptures and to trust him. And so we see both of these things emphasized this morning. But I want us to begin with this idea of contentment for just a moment and establish some things about that before we move on to uh, this, this, uh, this trusting in the Lord, which really gets us to the foundation of all that we see. Paul talking about here, um, I think. Um, the idea of contentment is one that we are all likely somewhat uh, familiar with, only we live in a culture that tends to find itself in one of two camps, okay? The first camp being that uh, contentment is something that um, is, is unobtainable, right? That you can't actually obtain con con uh, contentment, that there, that there is no ultimate satisfaction that will meet our needs and Desires That uh, perhaps is the, the first question, right? And the second one then would be this, right? If that's the first camp, that there is no such thing as universal contentment, the second one would be this, that um, contentment um, can, is found in many different areas for many different people, right? Does that make sense? Do we understand what, what we're saying when we, um, when, we, when we talk about that? In fact, if I were to, um, which I'm not going to do, so don't freak out, pull this room uh, and ask about um, contentment and what it is in your life and in your daily experience that produces contentment for you, um, there's a great possibility that we would get a lot of different answers. Okay, does that make sense? Let me give you just a few. I thought about some areas perhaps that, that we might, um, that culture might, that people might be tempted to look uh, to for satisfaction and the contentment that comes along with it. Perhaps it is freedom, right? We are on a college campus. We just celebrated the 4th of July every August. Um, this area that we are sitting on is overrun with thousands of new college students, right, who are away from home for perhaps the first time they've gotten their first taste of or are getting their first taste of freedom. And there's this idea that as uh, John is packing his bags in Dahlonega, preparing to move to Carrollton, that when he gets here and freedom is realized, that true contentment will be his, right? That it's just... We're setting the stage and we're preparing to take 
hold of it, right? Or for you, there are a few of you who are who are here now, but you will not be with us over the course of the next couple of months as you transition into this next season. This idea that when I get there, um, there will be contentment, whatever that there is. When we arrive, contentment. With freedom comes contentment. Perhaps that's an idea that we have. There are others, of course, and we see one explicitly mentioned within the context of this passage, and it has to do with the accumulation of wealth, right? Like, we live in, like, the richest country in the world, right? And so um, there is a tendency for you and I especially to idealize this, um, this, this, this accumulation of material possession as that which will bring us satisfaction and contentment, right? Do we, are we familiar with this idea, uh, right? We, we, we get this. We, we feel this. We exist in this tension, right? Um, maybe it is the absence of pain and the presence of good health, right? That when the pain is done and good health is finally realized, well, then I will be satisfied. Maybe it's positive relationships or, or even striving towards a future season or goal. And I say that intentionally, Okay, I say striving towards because what we undoubtedly find is that those goals set in the future when achieved are incapable of producing true, lasting contentment. And we are left looking to what is next. Okay, here's a few uh, examples of that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, perhaps it is um, serious relationship, right? Or maybe it's the absence of serious relationship. Maybe it's I'm in a serious relationship and I need to not be in this relationship anymore. And when that dies, when I finally kill that, then contentment, right? Or maybe it's, well, I desire this type of relationship. I desire serious relationship and even marriage. And when that is found, when that is obtained, then contentment and satisfaction will be realized in my life. Only when we get there, we realize, well, that actually didn't solve our issues, did it, right? That didn't satisfy our hearts. It didn't satisfy our souls or our, or our longings, and then it just continues, right? Then it becomes, well, when we have children, right? When we have children, then I will be satisfied. Or when my children leave, then I will be satisfied, right? And in each instance, we find that those things fail to satisfy us. They fail to bring us to a position of true contentment. Maybe it has to do with um, work relations, right, and certain promotions. And when this is obtained, then contentment. I think about that movie um, Click, right? You guys seen this, this Adam Sandler movie where he gets this magical remote um, and he, like, just clicks through all his life and he's looking for contentment. And he never finds it. And before you know it, he's, like, old and he's, like, fat and, like, his family left him and he's miserable. And contentment was never obtained, right? And so I think you guys get what we're talking about, right? That we're going to see Paul addressing uh, this morning as he points us back to, cat out of the bag, the contentment that can be found that satisfies our souls in Christ and in Christ alone. Over the past three weeks, we've seen Paul speaking toward the hope of gospel-transformed, gospel-centered relationships within the church. That's where we've been, right? The relationship between the church and the widow, right? The marginalized and those who are in need. The church's relationship with um, elders and the elders' relationship with the fellowship. The relationship between slaves and masters. And this whole new dichotomy that the gospel produces that says there is a more uh, familial element present to these relationships than would be found 
in culture, right? Absent of gospel-transformed perspective, right? That's where we've been over the past few weeks. And now we continue that this morning as Paul emphasizes this new way of thinking that centers on and finds its home in the gospel and in Christ. We conclude Paul's letter to Timothy with this clear distinction between godliness and ungodliness. That's where we begin in verse 2, 3, and on down through verse 5. And the emphasis on the satisfaction that Jesus is capable of of providing for us. And so there's a big idea that I want us to be considering as we work our way through two observations, two very simple observations. And that idea is this, that satisfaction for the soul is found not in material things, but in God. Okay, and so if you're here and you're searching for satisfaction and that which is to satisfy your soul, know that it is not found, Paul says, in material possession, but it is found in fellowship, through fellowship with God, right? And so that's good news, right? Because we've already spent about eight minutes um, establishing that contentment is something that we all desire, and we've likely, each one of us, diagnosed a number of different areas in which this produces itself in our own lives, right? You're going, oh yeah, that's an area I've been looking for contentment in. Oh yeah, here's where I've been looking for satisfaction in. I'm still wanting, but maybe I just need to go a little bit further. We've identified the problem, and so now what does the gospel have to say about the solution? We see this encouragement from Paul to Timothy to teach and urge things found in the same gospel that brings true contentment. And so I want us to begin by observing how in the second half, well, really we're going to look at verse 3. We're going to skip over the second half of verse 2, understanding that he is encouraging Timothy to teach and to urge those, uh, the church towards these things. And we're going to go on to verse 3, in which we observe the gospel exposing ungodliness while producing godliness in our lives. Okay, so let's let's understand it this way, that that the gospel is going to uh, shine a light on ungodliness in you and I. And it's going to, as a result, begin producing godliness, characteristics and attributes. We're doing all of this super intentionally. The emphasis is really on throughout this, the satisfaction that is found in Christ. But we have to begin by shining a light on ungodliness and the the, the production of godliness in our lives. Does this make sense? Are you guys with me so far? Okay, notes, take notes. This will be super helpful as we unpack this this morning. We see Paul emphasizing this point because it relates directly to the contentment that he's going to talk about in our second point. And so let's revisit some ground that we have covered already. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, Paul talks about man's sin. And he says some really specific things about man's sin. He, he, brings, he brings to the table this idea that, um, that the, the, the clarity of some's sin is certainly present while contrasting it with the conspicuous nature of the sins of others, okay? It's this idea that um, as a dog enters the room, typically, right, unless you have a really weird, strange dog, the nose comes in first, followed by the tail, right? 
If anybody has like a dog that walks reverse, just hang with me for the, for the point of the illustration, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about this idea that for some, sin is really out front. It's really blatant. It's really obvious, right? There's not a whole lot of digging that has to be done. It's it's there. It's observable. While for others, it is much more conspicuous. It follows in like the tail follows the nose. Does that make sense? Right? The dog enters and everything seems to be going well, but undoubtedly the tail is coming in, right? And so what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, is that there is clarity concerning the sins of some, while there is conspicuousness to the sins of others. Does that make sense? Are Are you guys with me? This is all in the context of setting aside leaders to love and to serve his church. We established that again, emphasized it again last week. We're talking about the gospel-driven church, but what we have to understand is that this is God's church, right? That he takes ownership over her, right? That she is the bride of Christ. And so as we consider the way that the gospel informs our relationships and the setting apart of leaders and submission and headship and, and love, care, concern, mission, all the areas that we talked about over the past couple of weeks, you can make sense of that here. Good luck, right? Um, good luck figuring, figuring that out. It's like Sanskrit back here. You guys have no idea. It's like wingdings, right? Uh, but you can, this is where it's at, right? It's here first and then it goes, it goes um, it goes there. And so we, we've seen Paul emphasizing uh, the setting aside of leaders, considering the conspicuous nature of sin, and in doing so, protecting both the gospel as well as the church. That's the emphasis in chapter 5. Now, why did we go all the way back to chapter 5? Well, because it relates directly with what we see in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we see the Apostle Paul discussing the gospel's work in exposing ungodliness, right? This issue that he brings up for the first time in chapter 5, verse 24. And so the question that we might ask is, is this, what is it that so clearly distinguishes righteousness from unrighteousness in the world? As God's people, how are we to make sense of what we see in the world around us? How do we distinguish between godly behavior, right, and godliness and ungodly behavior and ungodliness? Well, we can say a few things. We can say that it certainly cannot be based on one's opinion, right? Because if that were the case, then where, where you find yourself positionally on this globe geographically is certainly going to say a lot about what is godly or ungodly, right? What is accepted in one area is going to be rejected in the other. What is tagged in one area as ungodliness is embraced in another as godliness. We don't have to go outside of our own geographical context to understand what this means and what this looks like. Right? We have examples all around us. We consider um, the, the issue of life and the church's stance on the biblical model of the value of life given the Imago Dei, the creation right, of humanity in the image of God. Right? There's this value for life. Well, if, if, if what is godly and ungodly is based entirely on one's opinion, then how do you distinguish what that looks like in the world? And who's on the right side of the fence? And how am I to feel about these issues? And so we've got to say this, that we can't, when distinguishing godliness from ungodliness, we cannot base it on our opinions, but we must base it on what God's word has to say. 
right? It's not preferences, it's not opinions, but it is God's word. And through God's word, we see the exposure of ungodliness to the light of the kingdom of God. Ungodliness becomes much more obvious. Right now, our little boy, who is not here today because he's taking care of his new cousin in Birmingham, uh, is obsessed with track trials, or as you might refer to them, tractors, right? I know, I've been saying it wrong this entire time as well. He's obsessed with these things. This past week, we went to the 4th of July parade. Anybody hit the 4th of July parade in Carrollton? You guys got to make this part of your, like, activities next year. It's incredible, right? Um, The cowboys and the fire trucks and the track trials, right? Um, Judah got a couple of American flags that we have been walking around the house with continuously since July 4th, waving, saying, hey, fire truck. Hey, track trial. It's been adorable. It's the most incredible thing you've ever seen. And so we've just been really enjoying that recently. But we get this image Here of how the gospel, like a track trial, right, exposes our sin, right? It digs up, right? It it enters down into the dirt and pulls things out that were left otherwise unseen. Does that make sense? And so when we consider culture and we consider the world and we consider our own hearts, we must say that it is God's word and the gospel that exposes ungodliness around us. And get this, and we're much more hesitant to enter into this, ungodliness within us, right? Like we need the gospel. We need God's word, the good news of the kingdom of Christ Jesus, right? To shine light on you and I, exposing our ungodliness, and the need for transformation within our own hearts that would best reflect the good news of the transforming power of the gospel and the spirit of God upon sinners, right? We need that. We need God's word to, to, to do this. In light of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Mark's. Right, marks that Timothy and the church can be aware of as flags of ungodliness, right? As the nose enters the room, be aware of these specific marks so that before we get to the tail, you know what to expect. Right? Let the, let the tractor, right? The tractor dig down and pull these things out. If these things are present, then you can expect that this will follow. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, this is verse three, then he lays out all of these marks. And so what's he talking about specifically in verse three that can be a warning to the church of the ungodliness that is to follow? Protecting, again, both the gospel as well as the fellowship. Well, Paul says that ungodliness in this case is marked by a departure from clear biblical foundational truth. Right? That, it, that it strays away, that it departs from. 
And so what does this look like? How do we identify this? There ought to be for the Christian, right, these, these like spiritual antenna that are just up like all the time. And as things brush against them, they just like trigger all these nerves, right, in our brains that go, wait a second. Something is inherently wrong with this. Like something is going on here that I need to be aware of. The rejection of certain biblical foundational truths like the deity of Christ, like the centrality of the cross. If these things are neglected or if they are rejected, this is a rejection of foundational biblical truth. And you can bet that there is going to be serious sin following behind these particular uh, truths or lack thereof. The, the rejection of the deity of Christ, the centrality of the cross, and salvation by faith in Jesus as a sinner's only hope. If there is any other hope for the sinner, right? If, if someone ought to present any hope for the sinner other than Christ, then we have a departure from foundational biblical truth. Your salvation does not rest on your baptism. Your salvation does not rest on your obedience to the law. In fact, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the law shows us our great need for a substitute, right? For a rescuer, for one who is truer, for one who is better, for one who is capable of being obedient for you and I, that we might believe on him, Deity Christ, casting ourselves fully and finally on him to be rescued from sin and God's war against it. Newsflash, God wars against sin. It is not only you and I as sinners naturally separated from God that are warring against God, but God is warring against sin. Do we understand that? Do we get that, right? And so Paul says, man, this is hugely important, recognizing ungodliness and a departure from, verse 4, certain foundational biblical truths. Let's catch our breath because we've got some more work to do, right? It's like Paul says this in verse 3. If this, if you observe this, then you can expect this, verses 4 and 5, to follow. And so what does that look like? Well, he lays it out super clearly for us in verse 4 and 5. You can follow along there. I'm just going to read these things off. Pride and vanity. If you have a departure from foundational biblical truth, you can expect that these marks will follow. A lusting after controversy and quarreling. Well, why is that such a big issue? Well, because we've talked again and again about how the gospel-driven church displays for the world around, right, the characteristics of God and the community that he enjoys with himself and that he invites us into by way of the sacrifice of the Son. And so if there's disunity within the fellowship, that's a major issue. Why? Well, because it's a misrepresentation of the gospel. It's a misrepresentation of Christ. And so Paul says, hey, controversy and and particularly lusting after controversy, loving controversy, seeking after controversy. Anybody know anybody like this? Hugely annoying, incredibly annoying to where it's just always something. Spend five minutes after church scrolling through your Facebook feed and you will undoubtedly find numerous examples of exactly what we are talking about here. And then proceed to bang your head against the wall because it is incredibly frustrating. 
Paul says, be aware of these things. And in turn, avoid practicing them. Controversy, quarreling, he continues on, it's not over. Envy, dissension, right? This, this argumentative spirit, slanderous, right? Depraved of mind and deprivation of the truth. Just totally knowing no truth. That's what Paul has to say. Wow, that's intense, right? And so what do we do with this? Well, we contrast it with godliness, things that we observe from God's word that help to inform the way that we understand this. Let me give you a few examples. Whereas ungodliness is marked by a departure from clear biblical foundational truth, we see that godliness is marked by affirmation of certain foundational truths from the scriptures. And so what does that look like? Well, here are a few, right? Belief in the divinity of Jesus. Godliness is marked by belief in the divinity of Jesus. You've got to start there, right? Belief in salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone. Sound, biblical, gospel-centered teaching. Well, where do we see this? Again, I'm not building this based on my own opinions, but it comes directly from God's word, which is where we want to go, right? And so let's look there for a moment. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 and just highlight the entire chapter. Just circle it all and revisit it often. Paul makes it clear as he writes to the Galatians, By faith we are made children of Abraham, receiving the Spirit not by any work but through What would you guess the word is? Faith. Amen. Praise God. Faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through, you're smart people, faith. Not our own doing, not your own doing, not my own doing. And as a result, none of us can boast in anything except Christ Jesus. Saved now, not as a result of our good works, but Christ for good works. We continue on. We see the the contrast. We see that there is a bearing the marks of Christ and spirit-empowered humility. It's a mark of godliness. We see that as opposed to lusting after controversy and quarreling, there is this contrast between ungodliness and godliness. The godly display characteristics and attributes of of peace, right? There There is a harmonious sense. Think about what we've already seen in 1 Timothy, right? We saw Paul encouraging Timothy to encourage the church to pray for peace, right? Peace and humility, Marks of godliness within an individual and the fellowship. Marks of a transformed heart. Because again, let's understand this super clearly, that because of our sin, the consequences of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, right? Entrance of brokenness into the world. Our default settings are more like on the left side of the spectrum, right? Quarrelsome, argumentative, slanderous, prideful, vain, narcissistic. And yet we see this incredible contrast with the transformed 
apart. We see agreement and we see order, right? As opposed to envy, we observe this, this, this friendly side of things, kind. As opposed to dissension, we see unity. Uh, on one side, let's just summarize it all. As I've got this left-hand side, that's your right, left hand, right? right. We've got these two contrasts working against one another. We see on one side constant friction in terms of ideas with and within the church. Right? That's why culture so oftentimes thinks differently than the church does. That's why the church ought to think differently than culture does. Does Not in this way in which we battle against culture and fight against culture, but in a way in which we go out on mission in culture to say there is something better, right? That everything that you're experiencing and living in and, and resting in and sitting in and bathing in out here, that there's something, there's something better. Right? The, the gospel in which we see a love for truth. Not a hatred of truth. We see peace, not hostility. Right? We see harmony, not dissension. Marks of, of ungodliness and godliness. And here's the deal. This is super clear and super observable. We don't have to get out like magnifying glasses or microscopes or telescopes or like anything else that tends to magnify tiny things. To understand the difference, right? Like, it's, it's clear. This past week, I don't know if you know this, but this past week was an incredible week on the internet, right? Like, the internet was wonderful this past week. And one reason is because not, uh, not Lyndon B. Johnson, right? Which, not Lyndon B. Johnson wall. If I pull out a Lyndon B. Johnson illustration one Sunday, know that something's wrong, okay? Like, something's happened. Um, but, but instead... Um, LeBron James, right? LeBron James left Cleveland. He's not coming home. He's leaving home, right? That's a hit, right? Leaving home, leaving home, right? He's leaving home, um, and he's going out to uh, he's going out to L.A. He's going to be a Laker. Any Lakers fans in the house? You guys are like, I hate basketball, so uh, this makes no sense to me. Um, continue on. All right, so uh, LeBron's going out to the Lakers, and uh, earlier uh, this week when that was announced, just like chaos broke loose on the internet. It like almost shut it down. Like Kim Kardashian's got nothing on LBJ going to the Lakers, right? It just is a really incredible thing. And so um, I was watching the internet. I like to call it that. Do you guys like it when I refer to it that way? I was watching the internet. And um, there was this, this video uh, of this, this guy in L.A. Um, and on the side of this building was a, a Kobe Bryant, like, uh, mural painted, right? Like, the mamba. That's the snake, okay? Like, I didn't have black, and so we're working with green. Um, but there's this mural on the wall of, of Kobe. And someone had uh, taken this, uh, this, like, paper face of LeBron James and stuck it up on Kobe's face, right? Blasphemous. This is insane, right? And so um, this guy happened to notice what was going on. Why? Well, because it really stood out, right? He wasn't like, wait a second, something here is not like the other, right? It was super clear, this is the Mamba, and you have put this face of LeBron James on Mamba, and I'm upset. And so he walked across the road and proceeded to untie his shoe and throw it at the side of this wall until the king's face came off, right? And, and it was Kobe again. 
Now, what's the point of that? You're like, I don't know. Bring it home for me, right? Uh, The point is this, that it, it was not hard to distinguish that something was off, right? That, that something was out of place. Paul here says that there is a really clear distinction between ungodliness and godliness. And he says, if these things are present, then you can expect this to follow. And why am I telling you this? Well, because, again, this is, a, this is a, an issue of, a, of the representation of Christ to the world and the good of the fellowship. This is a defense of the gospel issue, right? And so Paul says, we've got to be super clear about this as we progress forward. We see false teachers fueled by ignorance and arrogance, seeking contentment in things that are fleeting that are incapable of bringing true satisfaction. That's what Paul has to say as we read through this portion of his letter. And so what is his encouragement then? Well, it is this. It is to be content in the gospel. To be content in the gospel. Write that down. Because we spent like 10 minutes in the beginning talking about contentment. Paul's encouragement to Timothy, who has found himself in a, in a most difficult circumstance, pastoring this, in this season, rebellious church, right? Paul encourages Timothy to, to be content in the gospel. Right? He encourages the church by way of their pastor, Timothy, to be content in the gospel, And he encourages you and I, a people, searching constantly for contentment, to be content in the gospel. We see this this contrasted as we transition. We see that godliness with contentment results in gain. And so not only do we see observation number one, the gospel exposing ungodliness while producing godliness, but we see that godliness with contentment results in gain. The call of verse three is to hold fast to sound teaching. Teaching that promotes godliness, contentment, and based on what we see in verses six through 10, gain. Look at what he says in verse six. He says this. He says, there are those teaching that great gain is found in godliness with contentment. And you go, well, that sounds all right. What is he talking about? Seems like we just said the same thing. We're talking a much more materialistic perspective on gain. Right? That's the issue, right? That you've got one side, the ungodly, who are presenting godliness, right? Following after Christ and embracing the gospel as a means to gain. That being very similar to what we observe in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? It's no gospel. It's very anti-gospel. It looks nothing like the gospel. 
Paul says, you've got to be aware of the ungodly because ultimately this is what they're saying. And this is incredibly wrong. This is way off base. In fact, he goes on to say that those who love money will depart from the faith or could look with me at verse eight. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content, right? Gospel produces contentment. Even when these things are lacking, we observe that from Paul's life again and again and again. Paul talks about the content nature, right, of his life because of the presence of the gospel. We can be content, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. That, wait a second, you just said, let me get this straight. You just said to us that, um, yeah, that we're in danger of like losing the, like departing from the faith, like leaving the faith, like realizing that we were never founded on anyway, the first place, the faith, if we love money, where do you get that from? Look at what he says here um, in the end of verse nine. Into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that, what? Plunge people into ruin and destruction. Two levels that we're working on here, right? That there's a realization for some that they have, they have never believed, right? That they have, they have never rested. They've never found contentment in Christ and are thus uh, perhaps even outside of the faith. While as others, right, who become distracted and begin focusing on other things will find themselves in total ruin. Why? Well, because God won't allow us to do that, right? Like he won't, he won't allow that. He won't, he won't move that forward. And so how, how, can we, how can we say this? Well, we can say it because the gospel and selfish gain are exclusive, right? They, they exist on opposite sides, of the spectrum. How do we know that? Well, because we observe the life of Christ. We observe the characteristics of our God, and we see that that selfishness, right? This desire for for selfish gain, godliness, are clearly working in opposite directions. That's not what we see modeled. That is not what we see and observe from the life of Christ. Luke records the words of Jesus, right, pertaining to this issue in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, when he writes, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus tells a really similar story in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 and going through 21, talking about the ruin that is oftentimes produced by pursuing after money. Like these issues that so oftentimes capture our attention and take captive our desires. Isn't it interesting that like this is nothing new, right? Like Paul's talking about this to Timothy pertaining to the church in Ephesus. And here we are in 2018 and we're talking about these very same issues here in Carrollton, Georgia. The tendency of the things of the world to capture our attention. Right? And to lure us into this trap that they are capable of producing contentment with us and for us. We go all the way back to the garden and we see this, right? We see this in the garden, the Satan telling Eve, right, that God is like pulling one over on you, right? That he's holding out on you and therefore contentment is found in this. Here, when you obtain this, you will find contentment. Paul says, man, this is not a new issue. 
right? But this is one that we must ever be aware of. In the gospel, we see our access to the riches of eternity. And we talk about the contrast. We see a, a, a very obvious contrast, material, temporal, possession, and how oftentimes those are looked to to satisfy us, contrasted with that of the eternal satisfaction that we found by, find by way of gospel riches, fellowship with God that benefits us both in the temporal as well as the eternal Right? Community with Christ and the grace that he proclaims by way of his life, death, and resurrection. And the final consummation of all things at the end of this age. There is a warning here. And here it is. Right? As, as clear as we can be. If your confession in Christ finds competition from materialism, know that there is a real danger of destruction lurking. That's the, that's the warning, right? This is clear. Paul cares for Timothy, cares for this church. He loves this church deeply. He loves these leaders deeply. He loves the gospel deeply. And thus he warns the church, right, to be aware of this. He desires not destruction for them, but he desires godliness for them. And then he provides this clarification concerning true con- con- uh, contentment. Right? This teaching is dangerous, it is sinful, and it is to be avoided. The truth is that in Christ there is produced this level of contentment that runs in stark contrast to, from the mentality of the world, not alongside it. Do we understand the difference there, right? That that, that these two things do not run parallel to one another, but they run in opposite directions of one another, right? It has to be understood that way in order that we might respond appropriately to the warning that Paul is talking about here. In Christ, we find our hope. Well, what does that mean? And how does that pertain to this? I know that. I know there's hope in Christ. But in what way does that pertain to this passage? In Christ, we find hope for overcoming this temptation. Right? And, and, and gr- the hope for grace for our shortcomings. We trust God. Right? As Jesus trusted the sufficiency of the Father when faced with temptation from the enemy. Right? We, we live like Christ, knowing that it doesn't just lead to gain, but it is gain. Right? That, that, that living like Christ and living for Christ, it doesn't simply lead us to gain, but it is gain. Now, why is that different? Well, because it means that our gain is not entirely set in eternity future, that 10,000 years from now we will experience gain. That is most certainly true, but there is, of course, an element of gain that we are experiencing and living in and resting in even now as we enjoy, again, fellowship with God and with his people. We come to the table every week, right, and we remember Christ's crucifixion and our adoption into the family by way of repentance and faith, 
We enjoy not only table fellowship with one another, which we most certainly will do as the saints come forward in just a few minutes to take of the bread and the cup, but we enjoy intimacy and fellowship with God. Why? How? Wait a tick. Where is he? He's residing within his people. Right? And so as we come to the table, we enjoy fellowship with God, a shadow that is to one day be fully manifest. We enjoy fellowship with one another. It's a powerful picture that we're reminded of as we come to the conclusion of our service each week. We know this, right? That contentment ought to be found in trusting God. That that's, here it is. Contentment is found in trusting God. We trust God with our souls, right? We trust him to meet our need, our daily provision. When we have bread, we ought to be thankful. Why? Well, because again, we understand where that comes from, right? That our God is good and that he meets our needs and that he provides for us. And so what's the secret to contentment? Here it is. It's not material possession. It's not acquisition of, 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 of all the things that we observe in the world around us. It's not a certain relationship with another individual set at some time in the future. It's not children ultimately, but we know that it is ultimately found in Christ and trusting God. That's where contentment is found. I came across a really incredible article from our dear friends at Desiring God this past week, in which they're addressing this very issue. Trusting God, they write, is not easy. It's not easy all the time. But it's not complex either, right? It's not always easy, but it certainly is not complex either. The knowledge of good and evil is complex. It produces knots that we cannot untie, but good news, knots that we were never meant to untie. We were meant to trust the Lord with them, to, to trust God with them. And when we do, what we find is great relief and contentment. Here's what he says, man, this is incredible. The secret to contentment is trusting God, right? The secret to forgiving those who have sinned against us is trusting God. The secret to turning away from sexual temptation is trusting God and the contentment that he produces within us to giving generously to kingdom needs, which is certainly an encouragement that we see implied from this passage. Even beyond our means, contentment, trusting God, to not allowing material abundance to choke the world in us. To rejoicing, even when sorrowful. What's the secret? Well, it's trusting God. It's contentment, right? To, to contentment, even when experiencing deprivation, right? To boldness, even in the face of fearful threats. To peace, even when facing persecuted trials. To joy, even when enduring affection, affliction and illness, To hope when all around our soul gives way. To gracious patience under pressured labors. 
to blessing those who persecute us, to courage and leaving family and property for Jesus' sake, to overcoming discouragement due to uh, adversity and weakness, to loving saints, to sin and sinful unbelievers, to facing every other fear and anxiety-producing temptation. What is the secret? Well, it's contentment in Christ, trusting God to produce these qualities within us that produces this way in which we live. Are we all together? God promises to give us peace and contentment if we trust him. He, He wants us to experience them in increasing measure, to trust him more, even here, even now, in a very troubled and in a very broken world. He's given us this very simple, very hard secret. To to trust him. That that's the only, that's the only way, right? That's the only way to contentment. And so as we close our time today and we begin to ask what in the world, right? What do we do with all of this? This is a lot, Here's what we do, right? We step back and we take inventory, right, of our own lives having been exposed to the word, right? Track trials. You guys remember this? Track, our lives just got track trialed, everyone, in case you didn't know what happened. We step back and we, and we observe these, these markers like in our lives and we, and we ask the Lord to, to help us to trust him more, right? To give us, to give us faith, right? Increased faith, right? To, to help us even in our unbelief, areas of our lives where we don't even understand or comprehend our unbelief so that we might begin to live the type of lives that, that he is Uh, encouraging us to, by way of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that we would live generous lives that reflect his generosity, that we wouldn't cling to the things of this world, hoping in them to bring us satisfaction, but that we would look to the creator and the sustainer of all things for satisfaction and our strength to live this type of life. Christ has done it. He has fulfilled it. He has lived it. And now, by way of the Spirit, he enables his people to do it and to live it. And that is incredibly hopeful. We lean on and we hold out sound doctrine, embracing gain and contentment in Christ, resulting in both holiness as well as happiness. And I want to close with this because I think I have even been guilty of pitting these two things against one another in the past. You've probably heard God is not most concerned with your happiness, but he's he's concerned with your what? With your holiness. That is true. It is most certainly true. But we've got to do some work to help us to understand the rest of that statement and the way that the gospel transforms our lives. You see, what happens is, as we, as we observe this and we desire this, and God gives us an increased faith that glorifies him and produces godliness in our lives by way of the gospel and the strength of the Spirit, as we progress forward in holiness, guess what? Holiness becomes our happiness. 
Does that make sense? And so these two things are not in constant collision against one another. But if you're here this morning and you're going, man, I've been seeking happiness and contentment in the things of this world, and I have been left wanting. Yeah, me too. Right? Let us look to Christ, desiring holiness, his desire for our lives that brings a lot of glory to him. And what we will find is that in seasons of plenty and in want, as the Apostle Paul writes, Man, gain. If I live, gain, right? If I die, gain. Yeah, either way, whatever. I tell more people about Jesus or, or gain. Whatever happens, I'm cool. I'm content. Let's desire that type of contentment as we observe the glory of the cross, uh, the resurrection, and the hope of eternity future this morning. Amen.